most teachers are chosen because they possess a number of fine qualities. They understand children, they have their best interests at heart, they are sympathetic and fair, and are deeply interested in education. But Miss Trunchbull possessed none of these qualities, and how she ever got her job was a mystery. For Miss Trunchbull had once been a famous athlete, and even now, the muscles were clearly in evidence. You could see them in the bull neck, the big shoulders, the thick arms, and the sinewy wrists. Looking at her, you got the feeling that this was someone who could bend iron bars and tear telephone directories in half. She had an obstinate chin, a cruel mouth, and small, arrogant eyes. She always had on a green cotton smock fastened with enormous silver belt. She looked more like an eccentric and bloodthirsty follower of staghounds than any teacher. And on her first afternoon at school, Matilda saw Miss Trunchbull. At the time, she was advancing upon a small girl about 10 years old who had a pair of plaited golden pigtails hanging above her shoulders, each in a satin blue bow. The girl called Amanda watched like someone trapped in a small field with an enraged bull. I want those filthy pigtails off. Before you come back to school tomorrow, chop them off, you understand? You look like a rat with a tail coming out of its head. But, but my mummy thinks that they look lovely, stuttered Amanda. I don't give a tinker's toot what your mummy thinks, the trunchbull yelled. And with that, she lunged forward and grabbed hold of Amanda's pigtails right in her front of her face. And she lifted the girl clearly off the ground, and then she started to swing around her head, around and around and around she went. Soon the trunchbull was leaning back against the weight of the whirling girl, pivoting expertly on her toes. Amanda was traveling so fast she became a blur. And suddenly, with a mighty grunt, Miss Trunchbull let go. Amanda went sailing like a rocket over the wire fence of the school. And she, descending in a graceful long parabola, bounced then three times sat up and tottered back to the playground. Matilda looked shocked and turned to another girl beside her and said, don't the parents complain? Would yours? The girl replied, mine wouldn't. Well, this weekend uh, marks the start of the, of the summer break. Uh, for most of us, school is finished this week, and so let me ask you uh, a timely questions to adults and children alike. Have you ever had a teacher as terrifying as that? Well, despite attending school in the same country as Roald Dahl, the author of the infamous Miss Trunchbull, I can safely tell you that no school teacher in Britain is actually that terrifying. Uh, growing up, I certainly had an array of average teachers, and I'm sure you did too. But teachers who launch little girls by the pigtails like an Olympian throwing the hammer is actually a childhood fantasy. As a result, in our non-fiction, grown-up world of, of reality, I guess most of us eventually come to believe that such terrifying teachers, they don't really exist. And that if such terrifying teachers did exist in school, well, they'd be as easy to identify as Miss Trunchbull, that some sort of public authority would instantly spot a child rocketing out of recess. And so great would be the uproar from parents that they would be quickly dismissed from school. But away from school, now that the holidays have begun, what about in the church? Do terrifying teachers exist 
in the church. Well, this morning, as we look at the book of Titus, I want to make the case that sadly, in adult reality, terrifying teachers do exist in the church. Indeed, not only do terrifying teachers exist there, but this morning, I want to make the case that actually they are much harder to spot the mistrunchable. And that actually they cause more damage than, than any swinging by the pigtails. And that consequently, Christians are called to do something about it. But as a result of that, I'm also conscious that such a topic might sound, at least at the outset, to be a bit mean-spirited or uncharitable. Perhaps you think that talking negatively about anyone else who goes to church is not a very Jesus-like thing to do. For others who are visiting here this morning, perhaps you're thinking, what kind of church have I come to? One where a preacher stands up and warns his people of other preachers. Who is this arrogant guy who thinks he holds all the truth in his hands? Well, friends, let me start by telling you that I bring this subject matter before us today solely because I do hold all the truth in my hands. I have not chosen this subject matter because it's a topic that I particularly desire to speak to, nor do I draw it to our attention this morning, because it's a topic that I am particularly able to speak to. Indeed, I pray that you would not see me as an authority upon it because of my position here, or because I stand here, or because of my jacket and tie, or because I speak with a funny accent. For my authority extends no further than that which I hold. My authority extends no further than that which I hold. I speak on the uncomfortable matter of terrifying teachers in the church simply because this is the next part allocated in God's word. We began in the letter of Titus a fortnight ago, and we continue to let God set the agenda. And so, friends, will you stand with me now, if you're able, for our next reading in God's word, Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 10. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 938. Titus 1, starting at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy guttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Please be seated. Well, friends, as we dive in, let me remind you uh, that this letter that we've just read was written uh, around 63 AD by the Apostle Paul. And Paul was a man who had met the risen Lord Jesus Christ uh, about 30 years ago before writing uh, this letter and had spent much of his time since then uh, preaching that historical truth that Jesus rose. Paul therefore planted many churches throughout southern Europe and that included some churches on the Greek island of Crete where history tells us that some Jewish communities lived. As we saw last week, many had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ there. 
Paul had seemingly gone from town to town uh, around the the 600-mile coastline of Crete with the wonderful message that Christ was crucified, crucified even for evil beasts as we read here. He who had no sin was made sin for such people that they may have peace with God and enjoy Him forever. And friends, that is the glorious message of Christ, believed 2,000 years ago. And that is the glorious message of Christ, that you can and you should believe this very day. Indeed, if you have not done so already, what are you waiting for? Trust in Christ today. But back to Crete. For there, many had become Christians, and and so many churches were scattered all over the island. But then, for whatever reason, uh, Paul had to leave. And so, wielding Paul's uh, unique apostolic authority, Titus, the original recipient of this letter, was given the task, as you can see from verse 5, of appointing elders, plural, in every town, singular. In short, just like today, each local church in Crete was to have a group of elders, godly men, who could teach the truth of God's Word. And those two factors of godliness and ability to teach were absolutely critical because the Cretan church was sadly infested with many ungodly men who were not teaching the truth of God's Word. So what were these Christians to do? Well, firstly, Titus and the elders and the churches in Crete had to spot these terrifying teachers. And so accordingly, point one this morning, what are the features of terrifying teachers. What are the features of terrifying teachers? In the chapter of Matilda that I just read a moment ago, we saw that that Miss Trunchbull could be recognized by an obstinate chin and a cruel mouth and small arrogant eyes and a a, a green uh, hunting garment and a menacing silver belt and, and by her monstrous marching all around the playground. The features of the terrifying Trunchbull were every bit the fictional picture of educational horror. But in the grown-up world of reality for Titus then and for us now, did you notice that no physical features were actually mentioned? Paul describes terrifying teachers for seven whole verses, but fails to tell Titus what they even look like. There's no mention of any facial features, no obstinate chins, no no cruel mouths, no arrogant eyes. We've got no idea whether they were dressed in green or or gold or gray, whether they marched or they skulked around the church. And so what was Titus to look for then, and what are we to look for now? Well, fashions and faces will change over time and space, but in every century, there are two features which we are particularly called to watch out for. And the first feature, Paul says, is empty words. Empty words. Verse 10 again, look down there. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers. These teachers don't submit to Paul. We we understand that. But what does Paul mean by empty talkers? Surely empty talk is just silence. But Paul can't mean that. Now, what I think Paul means here is a talk without any real spiritual substance. For the description, empty talkers, is literally just uh, the joining together of two Greek words, uh, vanity and words. Uh, Accordingly, these these teachers delivered kind of hot air speeches, vaporous religious lectures. Their word ministry left uh, true believers hungry or sick, for their sermons were like cotton candy. Their sermons were no doubt very eye-catching, 
Their sermons clearly sent many into a sugar frenzy of spiritual activity, for these teachers spoke on religious rituals like circumcision, verse 10, and Jewish myths, verse 14 and the impurity of certain foods, verse 15, and yet their sermons had no substance. They were people who taught much of rules for life, but little of God's mercy and the wonderful eternal life to come. These teachers may have looked legitimate in the pulpit, nothing like a terrifying Miss Trunchbull, and everything like a terrific leader. Great smile, great hair, great jacket, great suntan. But when they opened their mouths, spiritual hot air spewed forth like steam from a kettle. They were to be identified, not by the absence of any good looks, but by the absence of any good news. Christ may have been mentioned, but he was not the main thing. Now, to many of us, that might sound all rather silly, to go to church and say that one is a Christian, but to hear so little of Christ from the pulpit. And yet, sadly, today, how many do that? Never mind Crete in the first century. What about America in the 21st? How many Christians across this land are are listening to empty talkers even now? In the pew on a Sunday, in the counseling chair on a Monday, in the blogosphere on, on a Tuesday. How many ministries are built upon the message which is essentially you've got to have a positive mindset. You've got to start thinking more about yourself. You've got to sign up to this 30-day program. You've got to activate God's power when you're in medical need. You've got to have a new and bold approach to marriage. You've got to stop voting for people like that. And and you've got to start shunning people like this. And you've got to stop drinking that and, and wearing this. Sadly, some of the largest churches in this country, majority black churches, majority white churches, majority left churches, majority right churches, are led by people who look the part, but whose words are ultimately empty. And so, friends, when you listen to any Christian leader, any Christian leader, even the one standing before you this morning, When you think of of attending or or supporting a new ministry, I hope that you are more concerned by what is said than by what is seen. For if you're a Christian, you are called to listen more than you are to look. You are to question, am I being fed with the gospel? Is this teacher pushing me more to Jesus or pushing me more to, 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 to legalism or license? And yet there was another feature of these terrifying teachers in Crete, for Paul here mentions a a second way that they can be recognized, for they are not merely empty talkers, but they are con men. Uh, Verse 10, they are deceivers. Can you see that there? Indeed, verse 11, they teach for shameful gain. What are the features of these terrifying teachers? One, empty words, but also two, full wallets. Full wallets. A few years ago, an American pastor uh, was taking off at an airport a few miles from our house in London when his plane's engine stalled. Uh, thankfully, no one was hurt, but the plane was badly damaged in the false takeoff. And as a result, the pastor decided to launch the G650 campaign. Well, the giving drive was named after the plane that he wanted to buy, the Gulfstream G650, which was at the time the fastest and the most luxurious private jet in the whole world. An appeal was launched, 
and 200,000 people were sent, pleased to send at least $300. Help us to continue to spread the gospel around the world, the campaign email said. But in truth, it was far from that. For the aptly named pastor, Creflo Dollar, was spreading a prosperity gospel. A gospel which in his very own words meant that righteousness and riches go hand in hand. Wealth not only meets your needs but spreads the gospel message. The Bible, he says, tells us that wealth is stored up for the righteous. However, it will remain stored up until you claim it. Therefore, claim it now. The terrifying gospel of Creflo Dollar does not just amount to empty words, but amounts to his full wallet. And this was what was going on in Crete. The first century BC Roman scholar at Cicero said, moral principles are so divergent in Crete that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. And according to Paul, 100 years after Cicero, nothing had changed, even the church clergy were into highway robbery in Crete. A business model was effectively worthless words for great gain, lazy sermons for loads of loot, sugar-coated self-help, and religious imperatives went out, and mountains of dollars and generous checks rolled in. And sadly, again, 2,000 years on, it is just as pervasive. Now, of course, gospel teachers in the church receiving money is not wrong. The Bible tells us to ensure that pastors are paid well, and, and you pay me well, and I'm really thankful for that. But, but true teachers do not teach, verse 11, for shameful gain. True pastors, true elders, as we read last week in verse 7, should not be greedy for gain. Accordingly, if any so-called Christian teacher or preacher or counselor demands big money, be careful. Listen out for empty words. Look out for full wallets. For Paul warned that those are the two key features of terrifying teachers in the Christian church. And yet, as you and I consider Paul's words here and those features of those terrifying teachers, I think it's easy to feel rather unconcerned at times, isn't it? It's easy to think that it's not all that terrible. To think independently, well, if, if some people want to, to fill the wallets of such teachers, then that's their issue. Or to think indifferently, how much damage can empty words really do anyway? But Paul will not let Titus, nor the people of Crete, nor us here this morning think in such terms, for Paul not only highlights that the terrifying features of these teachers, but also the terrifying results of this teaching. So second question for us this morning, what are the results of terrifying teachers? What are the results of terrifying teachers? In the children's story of Matilda, uh, the results of the terrible Miss Trunchbull were, were even more terrifying than her appearance. For not only were little girls with pigtails launched out of the playground, but if you've read the book, you'll recall that little boys with large appetites were forced to eat chocolate cake until they were sick. And little children who played jokes were locked in tiny little cupboards with nails poking through. And the same is true in the church. For if empty words and full wallets were not terrifying enough for us, just look with me at the results. For what are the results of terrifying teachers? Firstly, they cause disunity. 
cause disunity. Whilst the wallets and the waistlines of, of these teachers no doubt expanded, the harmony and the health within the church contracted. For verse 11, they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families by their teaching. And so, friends, can you picture the scene with me in Crete? It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time, and all the relatives are gathered. Christian family heads out to their church together in much unity and laughter. But instead of leaving the Christmas Eve service, meditating on the wonderful coming of the Savior, they hear a sermon on religious rules and of the things which are violations to God's law. The preacher of this Cretan church has three points, as I imagine every preacher across every century has. And his first point, verse 15, is that Christians should obey the food laws. Christians are to have kosher celebrations. And so the family who arrived at church united all tut as they remember dad's Christmas ham that he has spent the afternoon basting. It must now be thrown out. And that is not all. For the preacher's second point, verse 10, is that, is that males should be circumcised. Christians are to be marked by Old Testament appearance. And so the family who arrived at church united all look over at the newborn nephew and they sit in deep judgment and wonder why Uncle John and, and Aunt Mary haven't obeyed the law. And finally, verse 14, the Cretan preacher exhorts at Christians to obey Jewish myths and the commands of religious men. Christians must exercise extra-biblical practices, he says. And so the family who arrived at the church united all leave in hypercritical mode, pious radars up, watching for what mum will put in her wine glass when she gets home, concerned about what her daughter will wear tomorrow. Alarmed about what type of music her son will play next. Friends, can you see what naturally ensues when sermons empty of grace are preached, when confidence is placed in religious works, when we have to add something to faith to make it real, when people are called to Jesus plus something else. Friends, when we are taught human rules and not God's mercy, when we are taught that our position before God it is not based upon Jesus' righteousness alone, we become self-righteous people. And self-righteousness does not stay hidden for long, does it? For the self-righteous live very insecure lives, and as a result, they look to secure themselves by highlighting the unrighteousness of others nearby. And hence, as a result, whole families are upset. Now, in Nashville in 2021, most Christians won't be tempted to self-righteousness through their abstinence of kosher foods, but how many are tempted to self-righteousness through their abstinence from alcohol? In Nashville in 2021, most Christians won't be tempted to self-righteousness through their identification with the circumcision party, but how many are tempted to self-righteousness through their identification with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? Listen, friends, I, I'm not saying that Christians are to throw their hands up in the air when it comes to alcohol and politics. Christians can't get drunk. Christians can't be racist. Christians can't support abortion. And Christians must think very carefully about what they wear and what they watch on Netflix and what music they listen to. Those in Christ must live like Christ. But if you hope 
that the focus of this pulpit will be religious externals, then you'll need to find another church because Titus 3 verse 5, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus plus something else does not equal righteousness. Jesus plus something else equals self-righteousness. Jesus plus something else eventually equals disunity. And friends, I know that many of you have experienced that, that painful reality in recent years with some family members. You have watched as disunity and division has sadly deepened because something other than Jesus has been held more dear. Friends, I hope you see where disunity in the church normally comes from. For the sake of our togetherness as a church family, please pray that this pulpit would not fall foul to it. And yet there is, and there was a second. A second, even more terrifying consequence of this teaching, for Paul tells Titus that such teachers, as you can see there, not only cause disunity, but that such teachers also cause death. Cause death. Earlier on, I described their teaching, the teaching of these Cretans as, as cotton candy. I described their teaching as cotton candy because their sermons were, were seemingly very enticing, but were ultimately just air. And yet there is another aspect of their teaching which makes the cotton candy uh, illustration apt. But what would happen to someone if they consumed merely cotton candy? Well, I wasn't sure, and so I typed it into Google because Google is good for things like that. And there I was told by a chemist that one can survive on cotton candy, but not for very long. For, quote, candy provides literally no nutrition, and the effects add up quickly. Eating straight sugar will immediately play havoc with your insulin, and you'll feel miserable. And then as the days wear on, you'll feel weak, as your body will become less able to heal. And then as the days turn into weeks, scurvy will hit, You'll notice increasing pain in muscles and joints. Gums will swell and bleed. You'll develop spots all over. But it is the protein deficiency that will kill you. How long you've got to live is hard to predict. But if you were alive after six months, I'd be amazed. It's easy to skip over the danger, but hidden in verse 14, friends, there's a similar warning. Verse 14 they devote themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. Paul says that if the teachers in the church in Crete dish out rules Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, if they keep serving up a message without any meat, many will spiritually die. Indeed, amazingly, Paul is so concerned by the sweet poison of this religious teaching that he is seemingly even concerned for the teachers who dole it out. Teach this, he says, like other teachers in the past, and you'll turn away from the truth. Teach this, and you'll fall away from the faith. Teach myths and human commands, and Christ will no longer nourish your soul. Friends, can you see how dangerous such Jesus plus teaching is? Can you see how terrifying it is to, to move on from a righteousness found in Christ alone to a right standing before God because of works. Can you see that if you tell yourself enough times, I'm going to walk the aisle because that will save me. 
I'm going to go and ask people for forgiveness and be the best me I can be because that will guarantee heaven. I'm going to give money because God can't damn me if I do. I'm going to volunteer because then God will like me more. I'm going to seminary because then I'll be valuable to God. Friends, if that lies at the very heart of your belief system, then grace will soon become nothing to you. Such sugary, religious zeal may you feel full for a few fleeting moments, but as soon as you fail, you will feel utterly miserable. A steady diet of rules will actually make you weak. But friends, it is the protein deficiency of Christ's righteousness alone that will kill you in the end. How long you'd live is hard to predict without Christ. If you were alive after six months, I'd be amazed. As the minister Charles Spurgeon declared one Sunday after seeing that some in his church were unhappy that he'd just given them the gospel again. He said, did I hear you murmur? Why does this man not hold up morality and good works? He preaches salvation for the guilty and vile. Alas, beware of self-righteousness. The black devil of licentiousness kills in his hundreds, but the white devil of self-righteousness kills in his thousands. These deadly teachers of religious piety had the potential to cause people to walk away from Jesus himself. No wonder Paul summarizes in verse 16, these teachers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Well, friends, with the terrifying features in full view, empty wallets, sorry, empty words and, and full wallets, with the terrifying results in mind, disunity and spiritual death, What are you and I to do? Third and final point this morning. What are we to do with terrifying teachers? What are we to do with terrifying teachers? Well, just before I give us some ideas on this, it's worth remembering the very first word in our passage. For verse 10, as you can see there, starts with the word for or or therefore. As my English teacher used to say to me, whenever you see the word therefore, you should look what it's there for. And in this case, 4 sends us back up to verses at 5 to 9 and reminds us that Titus was to appoint elders. Titus was to find godly men for each local church in Crete. For there were many who were insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Now let me say that the job of dealing with false teachers does not rest solely and finally with a group of any elders. Well, there are plenty of places in the Scripture where Paul blames the whole congregation for letting people come in and effectively teach them religion rather than Jesus. Every church member is responsible for false teaching, and any church member can spot it. But given verse 9, as you can see there, and the fact that an elder needed to be able to hold firm to the trustworthy word so that they'd be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it, uh, false teachers in the church are normally dealt with first by the elders of that church. Uh, Accordingly, these elders, as Paul had just stated, uh, are not only to be marked by a good life, but, but also by a good theology. Accordingly, let me say that if you aspire the noble task of being an elder in this church, of of lovingly shepherding people here, you have to work at both. Yes, you can't be an elder unless you're a nice guy. 
But it's not enough just to be a nice guy. For elders are called to care for their church like parents care for their very own children. And hence an elder must be alert as well as affectionate. Alert as well as affectionate. And you just imagine with me that that you are a parent and you decide to go away for a weekend and so you leave your toddlers with some neighbors. But you choose uh, your neighbors solely on the basis of that, that they're nice. They're just the kindest people on your street. They give out the most sweets at Halloween. They host the summer barbecue. They talk so very sweetly to your three-year-old. But when you arrive to drop them off, you know that they have a swimming pool with no cover. And a set of knives hovers above at the kitchen counter and an open bottle of bleach sits in the bathroom sink and, and, a, and a box of 4th of July fireworks lays strewn all over the coffee table. What would you do? Well, I trust you wouldn't shrug and say to your spouse as you sped away, well, these are nice. Friends, can you see? If dangerous teachers exist in the world of reality and not just in children's books, we need elders who are willing sometimes to guide those that they love so much away from danger, to look for doctrinal peril because they really care about them, to ward off terrifying teachers who can really hurt them. I hope we don't envision a conversation between two young Christians in our church, which goes a little bit like Matilda and the other girl when they see Miss Trunchbull throwing Amanda around the playground. Don't the parents complain, Matilda said. Would yours, the other girl replied, mine wouldn't. So what is the first imperative from this passage? What are we to do with terrifying teachers? Well, first of all, we are to make them silent. Make them silent. In verse 11, Paul doesn't pull any punches at all. They must be silenced. Which, of course, does not mean that Matt McCullough and, and, and Seth Jones hover around after the service with duct tape at the ready with Bill Heerman and Will Harvey ready to to, to burn any potentially bad books that you've been reading recently. But it does mean that we care very much about who is in this pulpit. It does mean that occasionally we have to have chats with people in private and say as, as lovingly as we can, do you realize that that teaching is actually quite dangerous? Do you realize that actually you're causing disunity? It doesn't mean that if you join this church that the elders and small group leaders and other mature people may sometimes love you enough to say, yeah, actually that that YouTube preacher doesn't actually teach what the Bible teaches. Yeah, that that, that book is actually a a pretty long way off theologically. Yeah, I'm not sure about that counselor's advice to you and and whether it is very Jesus-like at all. And friends, let me tell you that that task is not enjoyable. Anyone who enjoys it is not a very mature Christian, certainly not elder material. And so please pray for your elders and others here in the church and leadership. Pray that we would be incredibly patient, but sometimes bold enough to speak out. Open your Bibles, and please do not trust us blindly. We are sinful people who will make mistakes at times. You are called to hold us to account. Indeed, if I stop preaching the gospel here, you are to fire me. But in this anti-authoritarian age, please support us too. If you believe that we're trying our best to guard those who have been entrusted to us, those who we will give an account for. 
and recognize that sometimes, very sadly, because we live in a broken, sinful world, talking about false teaching has to be done because sadly there is plenty of teaching out there who, which can cause disunity and even death spiritually. And yet as we close, I also want us to see a second imperative, a command which is perhaps particularly key for those in leadership to note. For did you notice that these terrifying teachers were not only to be told off, but also to be taught? What are we to do with terrifying teachers? Secondly and finally, we're to make them sound. Make them sound. Middle of verse 13. Please look down for the final time. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. When I was first looking at this passage a few weeks ago, I was, I was reading it in, in our backyard. And as I read this section, I became increasingly distracted by some commotion in our conifer trees. And when I looked over, I realized that a, a northern mockingbird chick was no longer in its nest. For apparently the chick had stupidly decided that it, he or she was already to leave. And so it had run over all its brothers and sisters in the nest and and made a total mess of its home and its safety there and decided to fly out on its own. The result was potentially disastrous for all the chicks, but particularly for this arrogant little chick, which had just flopped out onto the grass and then hopped away to partial safety in the lower branches of a different tree. And as I heard it chirping away, I wondered what Mr. and Mrs. Mockingbird would do next in light of its arrogance, in light of its foolishness, in light of it making a total mess of their nest, in light of it endangering all the other chicks, I guess it would have been understandable if they had just left it to focus on the obedient chicks who stayed in the nest. But as I watched, I saw that its mother and father would still be willing to take on all the additional work and travel equally between the nest and the separated chick. In spite of their fledgling's foolishness, they kept diligently and faithfully feeding it, hoping that it would grow strong. And that, I think, friends, is, is the second command here. Terrifying teachers, Christians who hold bad theology, those who try to fly away from the nest and make a total mess of it are still to be fed if possible. Elders and other mature Christians are to be like those faithful parental mockingbirds. We're not to write people off we're to go to them. And we are not just to, to tell them to, to close their mouths, but to open their mouths that they might be fed with the truth. Friends, that's why I often pray. I often pray for certain people to return to us. It's why I actually pray for, 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 for false teachers to, to come here. It's why I long to see prosperity gospel teachers in this place. It's why I want to see Jewish rabbis and Islamic clerics coming on a Sunday. It's why I want to see atheists and Buddhists here right now. They won't be given this pulpit. They won't be able to join our church yet. But here, they will hopefully be fed true righteousness in Christ. They'll be instructed in the way to go. They will not find religion, but the riches of Jesus. Friends, like the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to love all. We are even called to love the mistrunchables, not only to silence them for our own sakes, but to make them sound for their sake too. Let us pray that we might be marked by such love, 
for their good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are, we are sobered by these words. Father, we see that sadly we, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where wolves come in and attack the sheep, your very people. And yet, Father, would, would such a passage cause us not to worry? For, Father, you have promised to keep your people to the very end. Father, you are the great shepherd of the sheep, and you have given us your very word. And so help us, Father. Help us to work. Help us to be warned. But help us to ultimately know that he who saved us will keep us if we stay in him. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.